Welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, the team behind the Breathing Space Project talk about the consequences and health impacts of air pollution and what we as individuals and as a society can do to improve air quality. I'm sat recording this podcast on a bright sunny day. The sky is blue with some painted on white fluffy clouds that don't honestly look real. So I'm struggling to get my head into the topic of this podcast. But in a way, that kind of is the topic of this podcast. It's easier to think about it if I shut my eyes and listen instead. My name is Gina Allen. I'm an artist with a background in in environmental science. When I stumbled across a news story about nine-year-old Ella Kissy Deborah and the health impacts of air pollution, I was both deeply shocked by Ella's story and then really surprised by my reaction. Not just by the sudden dawning that air pollution has the potential to affect the health of so many of us and how many people are already dealing with illness caused by or exacerbated by air pollution, but by the realisation that I'd never really given it that much thought before. I'd never thought that air pollution in the UK could be that bad. And I don't think I'm alone. Some of us will recall, and most of us can imagine, some mental image of London's pea supers and the smogs that once enveloped industrial towns. And while I remain grateful that I've never been exposed to anything like those smogs in my lifetime... Having reduced smoke pollution isn't the same as having reduced air pollution. I wonder, is modern air pollution somehow more insidious than those pea supers? Is it more difficult and dangerous because we can't see it? It's a problem that it shares with other environmental issues. How can we be aware of and concerned about and act to change something that we can't see. It felt like Ella's story woke me up. I made contact with Ella's mum, and that began an artistic collaboration of which this podcast is one part. My name is Rosamond Adukisidebra. I live in South East London with my two children. I am a mum of three. Uh, My eldest daughter, Ella Roberta, who died at nine, would have been 16 for today. And I also have twins who are age 13. I first got involved in the world of air pollution after the inquest of my late daughter. I am still knee deep in the world now. I set up the Ella Roberta Family Foundation and launched it on what would have been Ella's 10th birthday on the 24th of January 2014, just under a year after she had passed away. And to date, I am the World Health Organization's Advocate for Health and Air Quality. I'm also a member of B 
Ibiza Health Wellbeing Group, which deals with indoor air pollution. And I am an advisor at Healthy London Partnership, which is about looking at ways so that young people in London will control their asthma and basically so no one will die from an asthma attack. That's the aim really. The world of air pollution is incredibly complicated. There's nothing simple about it. There are no easy solutions, no quick wins. And everybody believes their way is the right way. There are obviously people who are incredibly vulnerable and need to be protected. And I feel I do my best to represent them. The people that don't get hurt, basically. That's a, a bit about my story. My daughter had what the pathologist described as one of the worst cases of asthma ever recorded in the United Kingdom. Um, we, we don't know when she became ill. When I first met Rosamond, it was clear that she saw the value in communicating an important message in different ways. While some people can digest and respond to statistics, others respond more viscerally to words and some to visual images. But she laid down the problem I would have to tackle in trying to communicate the issue of air pollution in a visual image. She used words that someone had spoken to her and it's a phrase that you hear time and time again when you start to talk to people who work around air pollution and its effects. She said, the challenge you're gonna have is that you've got to make the invisible visible. I didn't initially appreciate how difficult that would be. And while battling with some unconvincing attempts at a more traditional narrative painting to tell Ella's story, I had a conversation with Dr. Lee Crooks at the University of Sheffield. His genuine concern about air pollution stemming from the personal and addressed in his professional life was apparent. And that shared awareness turned into a collaboration, which in turn led to an exhibition in Sheffield's Festival of the Mind 2020. My name is Lee Crooks. Uh, I work as a university teacher in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Sheffield. Uh, my interest in air pollution is the result of a number of different things, some of them which are very personal. Uh, industrial pollution has had a big impact on, on two of my family members. My granddad was a coal miner. Uh, and he died at the age of 52 as a result of a severe form of black lung disease, which resulted from years of breathing in coal dust when he worked down the mine. Uh, and he died when I was a baby, so I never got to know him. And my father was a fireman and he had to retire early from the fire service on medical grounds as a result of prolonged exposure to smoke over the time he was a fireman. So this experience has all affected how I Sort of view pollution uh, and, and what I do in my sort of job and how I try and tackle it. As someone who's grown up in Sheffield too and someone who still lives here and got a family here, I'm interested in what's been done in Sheffield, the, the history of air pollution in the city, attempts to improve it 
and, and my research involves looking at how uh, I can work with local campaigners to make pollution more visible. So if you look at the history of air pollution in Sheffield and you look at the library archives, you, you'll find that as early as the 1600s, visitors to Sheffield were already remarking on a place that was half choked with town smoke. So this, this issue of air pollution was already becoming apparent hundreds of years ago. As a Sheffield, I'm very proud of the term made in Sheffield, but this did come at a cost. It's for a long time been one of the most polluted cities in the UK. Uh, it's improved in recent years, but the Victorians were very much aware of, of levels of pollution. And if you think about the geography of the city, why do you think all the owners of the steelworks built their mansions and villas in Fulwood, Ramoor, Netheredge and the southwest of the city? And most of the workers' housing got built in the east and northeast. That's because the prevailing wind in Sheffield comes from the southwest. So what all the pollution tended to happen in the centre of the city uh, and then those places on the east and northeast of the city where a lot of the workers' housing was situated, they were very much adversely affected by the pollution in the city. The air was pretty fresh off the moors, but think about those folks living in Attercliffe, Brightside, Winkerbank and Rotherham when Sheffield was at its most polluted. And by the 1920s, when we'd first got air travel in the UK, pilots could actually navigate the way up the country by looking out for the smoke on the horizon that marked out Sheffield. And, and this is actually recorded in the library archives. George Orwell came to Sheffield in the late 1930s and he commented on the pollution too. And unofficially, uh, until the 1970s, Sheffield used to have a pollution line policy, such that any new housing development was not allowed to take place uh, under the 175-foot contour beneath which the air, particularly in the north and eastern parts of the city, was heavily polluted. So pollution was extremely visible for much of Sheffield's history, but today's clear skies are very deceiving, and that's essentially the problem that we're wrestling with. You can't see nitrogen dioxide, sulphur dioxide, and you can't see microparticulates, but just because we can't see them doesn't mean to say they aren't harming us. By breathing these in all the time, and they can get deep into your lungs and into your bloodstream. And around 500 people in Sheffield die prematurely as a result of conditions linked to elevated levels of air pollution. The sources of pollution are, are different from what they once were. It's, it's now much more from vehicles um, rather than industrial sources. But the inequalities in exposure to air pollution across the city continue, and, and the east and northeast generally suffer much higher levels of air pollution, with particular problems around Meadow Hall and the M1. And in the early 2000s, emergency respiratory admissions for under fours living in Tinsley were around two and a half times higher than the city average. That thankfully has reduced over recent years, but there is still an issue of pollution around Meadow Hall and the M1. There are also hot spots of pollution in heavily congested areas in other parts of the city, and the concourse area outside the railway station was recently recorded as being one of the 10 most polluted places in the UK. So what do we do about it? As someone who teaches students about urban planning, town planning, uh, and I teach students to become professional planners who work to create better places, I'm very much interested in how we can create healthier places through, for example, better houses, more secure, good quality jobs, access to green space, and healthy food and places that enable people to walk, cycle, access good public transport, and generally reduce their reliance on cars. More generally, as I repeatedly tell my students, we need to create places, neighbourhoods, cities, 
that are designed for people, not cars. I'm encouraged by some of the progress being made in Sheffield, the Air Quality Action Plan and the proposal for a clean air zone that was recently consulted on. But we need to make air pollution more visible in local planning policy and ensure it's given full consideration in relation to new developments such as new housing, schools, healthcare facilities and care homes. But everyone, not just city planners, needs to do their bit to minimise pollution. Too many short journeys in Sheffield are still made by car um, when people could be cycling or walking. And to do that, we need to develop a much better infrastructure for walking and cycling in the city. People of Sheffield led the way in campaigning against air pollution in the early 1950s, and this ultimately led to the Clean Air Act. We could lead the way again in Sheffield. People have a right to clean air and children have a right to live in places where their lung development isn't harmed by the air that they breathe. But people don't take air pollution seriously enough because they can't see it. So my concern is how we make it visible. And this can be done, as has been done within this exhibition, through individual stories and art, through better measurement and visualisation of air pollution, through increased press coverage and raising people's awareness, and through making air pollution more visible in local plans and planning policies. Lee expressed what I probably already knew, but hadn't thought about. Air pollution isn't evenly spread. We're more exposed to it in some places than in others. While acknowledging that air pollution comes from many sources, from farming to how we heat and cook in our homes, a major source of air pollution in towns and cities in the UK is road transport. Some people are more affected just simply because of the local environment where they live. Some by the route they take to work or to the shops or to school. So it would help, wouldn't it, to know how different types of air pollution are affecting different areas. Can we know that? Rohit Chakraborty researches in the Department of Civil and Structural Engineering at the University of Sheffield. His research looks at measuring and monitoring different types of air pollution from a local level to a much wider scale, and he considers how the outputs of that can help us to tackle a problem that we can't see? Well, you know, I think I have both a personal as well as a professional connection to air pollution. I was born in India and out of many things which are good, good air quality is, well, not one of them. It has always been a critical thing while growing up. For example, I remember a friend of mine visiting he came with her five-year-old daughter in Delhi and her daughter turned blue uh, because of having problem in breathing. It's something that's always been in my mind and how to address uh, problems like this. I must mention uh, I'm from an engineering background. I'm an electronics engineer. So technically I have nothing to do with the environment, one might say. But when I was doing my master's, I chose my dissertation project on monitoring air pollution. I was in Belfast uh, back then, a couple of years back. I developed a sensor, uh, air quality sensor, and I was measuring in and around Belfast. And it seems like it's a very clean city with very uh, pure air to breathe, but turned out, and I was really shocked to find that air quality levels were really, really bad. 
and I was wondering why, and then I realized it was the shipping docks nearby where I was living, which dumped a lot of air polluting particles in the air. It's something like previous speakers mentioned, it's something we can't see, yet it's a big challenge uh, in today's life. We need to understand where air pollution is coming, yeah? For that purpose, I think, from technical point of view, sensors come into a plays a very big role. We have uh, in Sheffield, particularly, we have uh, deployed more than two hundred sensors. Uh, it's a mixture of high quality or high cost, and some high quality, low cost, and some low quality, low cost sensors. Even if I say low quality, they are very cheap, and we can deploy numbers uh, high numbers of these cheap sensors and they help to fill up the gap between the expensive sensors and they're really good these sensors play a vital role to understand the source of air pollution mostly they are local like uh, transport um, you know uh, nitrogen dioxide primary sources uh, from cars uh, buses old vehicles uh, trains and stuff like that but there is also the particulate levels as well and they can be local from wood burners which is the highest uh, biggest source in in the uk at least it could also be from places far away so it's not just a local problem and this is where we need to understand what are the sources uh, what are the composition even so sometimes we have to sample the air uh, put it on the microscope and understand the chemical composition how they affect the human life and some particles are less harmful and some particles may be really really bad for our health there are evidence which shows it goes uh, crosses our bloodstream and can cause severe problems to our life so this is where mapping comes into play i guess we if we can understand uh, what's causing the problem in real time we can then address it we create models and spatio-temporal maps which Although it sounds technical, it's basically understanding the entire levels of pollution anywhere around us. Everywhere you go, it's with high-resolution maps. You can understand where you're going and how much the air pollution levels are. It kind of can work like on TV, we see the weather forecasts. So there could be air pollution forecasts uh, every day. And you can plan your day, you can plan your uh, traveling around that, plan your routes, and you can take the decisions based on these readings. So definitely uh, putting these sensors help a lot. But um, I think the big picture we keep missing is air pollution is not a technical problem and it's not a technological issue. We have to think it as a social problem. It needs to be tackled locally. Uh, yes, government has a lot to big role to play. They need to support cleaner transport, cleaner energy, uh, reliable, cheap uh, transport as well. Promote active traveling. I think UK government is kind of promoting right now. So good things are happening, but we have to also tackle it in a local level. Uh, we need to understand burning garden waste is not a good thing to do. Wood burners, of course, I mentioned, uh, it's the biggest source of air pollutant uh, for PM, particulate matters, in the UK right now. Um, there are things like that we have to understand. And when we start tackling in a local uh, domain, that's when 
the national and even international wise though we can have better air quality overall. While some of the low-cost air pollution monitors Rohit mentions are perhaps becoming more accessible to communities, there are monitors that can send output directly to a smartphone app to give people information about their individual exposure to air pollution over the course of the day. We don't have to rely on the technology to show us where air pollution is higher. With a little bit of knowledge about what to look for, there are already indicators all around us that are helping to make the invisible visible. My name is Maria Valmartin and I'm an atmospheric scientist. I work at the Leverhulme Center for Climate Change Mitigation of University of Sheffield. Aside an atmospheric scientist, I'm also a mom of three children, two girls and a boy, and they are eight, six and four year old. Throughout my career, I have worked on a wide range of topics related to air pollution and also in topics related with the interaction among the atmosphere, biosphere, and climate. So in a sense, I work studying how human activities like traffic and natural processes, for example, wildfires, affect the atmosphere and climate, and also vice versa, how the atmosphere and climate can alter the land and plants. I wanted to tell you about my quest to make the invisible air pollution visible and how I started working using plants as indicators of air pollution. This quest started a few years ago, just when I moved to the UK, Sheffield to be exact, with my family. We used to live in the US, Fort Collins, Colorado. Fort Collins is a city located next to the Rocky Mountains at about 1,500 meters altitude, so 5,000 feet, and it has very clean air. At the time, I was working in the field of air pollution, in particular on the impacts of air pollution in remote regions, like, for example, how air pollution from eastern U.S. affects the pristine North Atlantic region. But the effect of urban air pollution on human health wasn't a topic that drew my, my attention as a scientist because it didn't directly affect me or my family. Yes, in Fort Collins, we had days with poor air quality, for example, from wildfires in the nearby forest, and during those days, a school had to be closed because of large concentrations of particles. We also had some days with high levels of ozone because of the very sunny and warm conditions we had in Fort Collins. You might have heard about good and bad ozone and even about the ozone layer. Well, ozone in the ozone layer, which is in the upper atmosphere at more than 15 kilometer altitude, is good because that ozone protects us from the ultraviolet radiation. However, ozone located near the surface, where we live and breathe, is bad. Ozone here is considered an air pollutant and is produced from the reaction of hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxides that are emitted by cars and industry and also vegetation in the presence of sunlight. So at that time, I wasn't too concerned about air pollution or urban air pollution because these cases of high ozone and particles from wildfires wouldn't happen so often. Well, in 2014, I moved to Sheffield, and then is when I started worrying about urban air pollution and how poor air quality could affect my children's health. I still remember I was walking one of the main roads in Sheffield, Footwood Road, pushing a prawn and taking my youngest daughter to the nursery. We were walking next to a bus, which was idling and releasing so much black sauce that I had to stop. 
What was paradoxical is that there was a big sign at the back of the bus about Air Aware. And Air Aware was a campaign launched by the Sheffield City Council at that time to raise awareness of the problem of, of air pollution in Sheffield. Well, that sign said that poor air quality in Sheffield accounted for up to 500 premature deaths per year in Sheffield. And that message actually was a real punch on my face. So while I was walking down that road with my child, I realized I needed to do something. Air pollution was my area of expertise, so there might be something I could do to help. I still had a 15 minutes walk to my office after I dropped my daughter to the nursery. And during that walk, I remember an initiative that started in the US a few years before I left, Ozone Gardens. And Ozone Garden is a garden that contains plants that are sensitive to ozone pollution. As I mentioned, ozone near the ground is an air pollutant and is a very powerful oxidant that damages agricultural crops and plants in natural ecosystems. For good or bad, it is easy to detect if a plant has been damaged by ozone, as that burning causes brown stippling. So basically, small, dark, or yellow spots on the leaves. I decided that I wanted to bring an ozone garden to Sheffield. So if people could see with their naked eyes what air pollution, in this case ozone pollution, can do to plants, they might imagine what it can do to our lungs. So those plants that are particularly sensitive to ozone pollution are called bioindicators. So bioindicators are in general organisms such as plants, lichens, fungi, that give quantitative information on the quality of the environment around them. One of the first questions I had was, where are the ozone levels in Sheffield? Normally, high levels of ozone in the lower atmosphere occur in warm and sunny days. And those are actually certainly not the conditions we have often in Sheffield. So we can imagine the answer. Ozone levels are typically low in Sheffield and in general across the UK. In fact, ozone is not considered a real problem in the UK yet, as other air pollutants such as particular matter or nitrogen dioxide. That didn't discourage me as I knew there could be other indicators or bioindicators of air pollution in the UK that could be used. For example, 50 years ago, main cities in the UK were affected by high concentrations of sulfur dioxide during the winter time, as, my, as some of you might remember. This sulfur dioxide came from industry like power plants and household coal burning. At that time, it was hard to find black spots on sycamore leaves caused by the tar spot fungus in cities and industrial areas because high levels of sulfur dioxide were toxic for that fungus. Another bioindicator of air pollution are lichens. Lichens are made up of two or more different organisms living together, typically in a fungus and an alga. And they are good bioindicators because some of them are particularly sensitive to nitrogen dioxide air pollution. Using that property, the sensitivity to air pollution, a few years ago, the Open Air Laboratories Network, which was a citizen science initiative in the UK, developed lichen surveys to identify lichens that are nitrogen loving. So that means like lichens that can live in areas with high levels of nitrogen dioxide, and also to identify nitrogen sensitive lichens. 
So those lichens that live in clean areas because they tend to die with nitrogen dioxide pollution. Results from these surveys actually have been very interesting as they have been used to map levels of nitrogen dioxide across the UK with the help of community groups and schools. So in 2015, I partnered with scientists of University of Leeds and York. We got funding through the White Rose Collaboration Fund to establish the first ozone garden in the UK, also in collaboration with the Sheffield City Council and the Sheffield Botanical Gardens. At the time, we decided to call the garden Air Quality Garden, because in addition to creating an ozone garden, we also wanted to organize activities to identify lichens within the botanical gardens. The Air Quality Garden was first established in 2016. It is a 4 by 8 square meter plot located by the northeast entrance of the Sheffield Botanical Garden. There we grow snap beans, wheat and clover every year. And we plant the garden with the help of pupils from local schools and run activities throughout the growing season until September. One thing we found, actually, and I think this is interesting, is that our plants get significantly damaged by ozone pollution every summer. That was unexpected, but we can explain that because this past summer, Sheffield had always quite a few days with high concentrations of ozone, high enough to burn the leaf of our bioindicator plant. Also, the Sheffield Botanical Gardens is next to a busy road in Sheffield with lots of traffic, Brocoband. So you can imagine the type of lichens we find on the trees, especially those located next to the road. So yes, we find nitrogen-loving lichens. Unfortunately, this year, because of COVID-19, we haven't been able to establish the garden and run any of our plant activities but we are looking forward to a fresh new start next year and work again with the Sheffield community to make the invisible air pollution visible. Fingers crossed until then. I think awareness about air pollution and its health impacts is rising. So what is being done? And what more can we do to tackle it? And I guess some things will remain unknown. Um, these things are always complicated. So yeah, you can do your best to find out as much as possible. That's not always possible to find out every intricate detail. Um, I think for me, what I do, I get lambered with the term campaigner. I don't really see myself as a campaigner at all. Definitely more as an advocate, definitely not a campaigner. And I think I'm willing to work with everybody and anybody to find a solution to the problem. I think the difficulty about air pollution is the invisibility of it. A bit like COVID, really. You have this gas out there that's doing so much harm that people can't see. And it is a very tough sell. There needs to be an enormous amount of work put into this area in education uh, and bringing lots of people to the table who are currently not at the table. It seems to be a few that talk for the majority, which is part of the problem anyway. And especially the people who are most affected, they don't have a lot of control over decisions that are made, which is terrible because they are the ones that are suffering. 
um, air pollution in the United Kingdom kills about 40,000 people each year. And worldwide, it is a pandemic because 7 million people die every year from air pollution. Um, my hope moving forward is that my daughter's inquest will bring some justice for people who continue to suffer. And there's some level of accountability for some of the decisions that governments and districts and local authorities make. I feel people are powerless and that's part of the reason we are here. And it is not right that children are suffering, having to die from something that is avoidable. Um, we all have to work together. That's the problem. Um, there is a lot of division, especially how we go about doing things. And especially in the United Kingdom, where at least 65% of the emissions comes from transport. Um, so to drive or not to drive, when to drive, who should drive, is it essential or not essential? And on and on the debate goes. Um, and that's where we are today, I think. Also, another source of air pollution is wood smoke, building construction, agriculture, especially ammonia. So these are all very difficult decisions. The fact that we are led by a government who, in my opinion, doesn't take this as seriously as it should do is part of the problem. It is, in effect, a public health crisis. But I think, ultimately, it's raising awareness that's key. There are people who have a lot of knowledge and there are others who have no knowledge at all. And it's to try and find a midway point. And for people to understand that the air they are breathing is shortening their life, is killing them. And there's so much inequality as well um, when it comes to this topic, that in recent times, environmental racism has played a huge part in this. Um, we, we can't seem to get a, a, away from that. And I think sometimes it makes un uncomfortable listening, but my new term is lung apartheid. Um, depending on where one lives, that's come into question quite a bit of, of late. So after the inquest, I hope to continue to raise awareness, to educate, and that we all need to work together to come to solutions. There's no point people having a go at each other. That doesn't get anywhere. And ultimately, it's about behaviour change which takes years, um, and on this particular matter, years is something we do not have. So the sooner we get our acts together, and we will all feel better for it, especially with COVID uh, looming on the horizon again over the winter season, it is in our interest to have as low pollution as we possibly can, because I worry if the air is polluted, it will resurface again because areas of high air pollution have had 
a lot more COVID deaths. So that's a huge, huge worry. I aim to do my best. Um, one's not perfect. To do my best and to help with the situation, not make it worse. Making things worse is never great. But so one needs to be quite articulate, think things through, look at the impact they have on groups of people before decisions are made. And we can't be in a situation where one group is benefiting to the detriment of others. That's not a fair society or a just one for that matter. So, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. There's no end in sight at the moment. And it's going to take hard work, persuasion and patience. So air pollution can't escape our awareness as easily as perhaps it has done in recent years. My own response to the question about the potential impacts of air pollution that learning of Ella's story raised for me was to find an artistic way to invite the viewer to ask themselves the same question. What are the potential impacts of air pollution that we're living with? When I met her family, they gave me an incredible sense of who Ella was, her personality and her passions and her pet hates. I've no doubt at all that she was a hugely engaging and intelligent and vivacious girl. But what struck me particularly looking at family photos of her was two things. Firstly, she had an amazing natural ability to look directly into the camera so that when you look at photos of Ella, she's looking straight back at you. She seems to me to have been incredibly expressive with her eyes and body language. And secondly, how it's clear in some of the photos as she became more ill she continued to almost address you through the photo, but she didn't try to disguise her illness. The more I sketched some of these photos, the more I felt like she was challenging me. I didn't have to tell her story in the works I produced. I just had to do a good enough job in creating them to allow her to tell her own story. But as I mentioned before, Attempts at a more traditional painting style seemed to keep falling flat. Finally, I took the challenge to make the invisible visible, more literally. And I decided to try and create the images using pollution. I started to experiment with collecting dirt and grime from the back and wheels of cars using what must include remains from exhaust fumes and brake dust which is a significant source of particular matter. And using that directly to create the images of Ella, showing glimpses of her passions and how her health changed during her short life. Whether air pollution is recognised legally as the cause of Ella's death remains to be concluded. But Ella's case asks us all a huge question. Knowing air pollution is present in our environment, sometimes at levels that could be causing damage to our health. Do we accept it? Or do we act to reduce it? Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash 
Festival of the Mind. 